the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. AM 970 presents Eye on Real Estate. This is your premier source for real estate information. From the hot properties in the tri-state to the latest in real estate market trends. From mortgage news to answers to all of your real estate questions, you'll be in the know with help from the experts. Call now, 866-970-9622. 866-970-9622. Now, here's your host for Eye on Real Estate, Douglas Elliman's CEO, Dottie Herman. Good morning and welcome to Iron Real Estate. This is Jerry Fitty sitting in for Dottie Herman, who is away this week, but she'll be back next week uh, taking all your questions on Iron Real Estate. Um, it's the only talk radio show on radio that talks about real estate. Everything that has to do with real estate, which is Dottie likes to recall, is about everything. Um, I am here or soon to be here with Ace. Uh, Ace is on yet. Um, not yet? Okay. Well, hopefully he'll be here. Otherwise, it's, you're just going to be listening to me for two hours. Um, we have uh, a lot of interesting things to talk about on today's show. Uh, and, of course, we always welcome our callers and uh, our listeners to call in at 866-970-9622. The uh, beginning of the show is the best time to get us. Um, and the lines are easier. The longer you wait, the more chance you're not going to be able to get in. So give us a call at 866 970 9622 with any of your real estate questions uh, or mortgage and finance questions uh, for Ace um, when he gets in. And we'll uh, talk a little bit about interest rates and what has happened to them over the last week because, as we predicted, uh, they're going to start to bump up again. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Um, it's tax time, uh, everybody's favorite time of year. Uh, we're going to just touch on, I don't want to spend too much time on taxes because otherwise we tend to get people to uh, turn off the radio because it's not the most exciting topic. But we should talk a little bit about taxes and, and real estate in particular. I want to go over uh, some capital gains issues with 1031 exchanges, which we always have questions on. People consistently uh, forget about 1031 or their brokers or lawyers or CPAs don't remind them about it. And Probably once a month I get a call from somebody who uh, forgot to do it and they closed on the property and they put all the money in the bank and it's too late and now they've got to pay a hefty capital gains bill and they're usually pretty annoyed at their advisors for not telling them about it and I don't blame them. Uh, so we're going to go over some of that. I also want to talk about the rules on capital improvements and what you can deduct and what you can't when you go to sell your home. You know, the time to gather all those receipts is not <clears throat> when you go to sell it and try to go back through the last 20 years and find all the receipts uh, for all the improvements that you did to be able to document it so that you can reduce the payment of capital gains. You know, those are exempt. So it's really, uh, it's really money well saved. Um, some of the rules on the congestion pricing have come out and as expected with any kind of um, new, uh, tax measure, new political rule. We have a lot of uh, constituencies requesting exemptions 
from the congestion pricing, saying that, well, they should be exempt, others pay it. And I think what's going to happen is, as often happens with these situations, is that the exceptions are going to swallow the rule, and we're going to have very few people paying the congestion pricing, and everybody else is going to have exemptions. And I would really like to hear from people and see what they think. Because, you know, I've been a, I've been a fan and advocate of congestion pricing. It makes a lot of sense. Other cities do it. Um, but if you're not going to do it across the board, if you're not going to be consistent, if you're going to give this group an exemption, that group an exemption, simply because um, they are a um, constituency that you want to please or have some sympathy for, um, it's just not going to work. The point of uh, congestion pricing is to reduce the number of cars in Midtown Business District during the business hours, Monday through Friday. And the only way to do that is to impose a fee. Um, my favorite group requesting exemption were the New York, New Jersey politicians. Um, I don't know where they get off thinking that, but they, they requested special exemption status for them. Um, so we'll, we'll get to that a little bit later on. Again, the number 866-970-9622. Um, as Dottie likes to do, we recall on this day in 1742, the famous Hallelujah Chorus was first performed in Dublin. It was commissioned by the Irish government to raise money for hospitals and debtors' prisons. And, of course, it's a, a very popular and uh, well-known verse. If you were born this day, you share your birthday with Thomas Jefferson, who was the uh, one of the founding fathers, a, a president, a writer of the Declaration of Independence. And he was born today in 1743, and then he died in 1826. Um, <clears throat> later in the show, I want to talk, if we have time, about... Uh, giving a gift of equity in your home to your kids. People still uh, like to do that. I get questions about it all the time. And, you know, you really should consult a tax advisor before you do it. It's not always the best idea. Uh, there are tax implications to it, and you could end up uh, putting your, you know, the, the, your children who you give the gift of equity to, you could put them in a far worse position than they would if you just simply left it to them in the will. Um, I want to talk about <clears throat> wills for a minute because I had another situation this week where a, a new client called in and, and presented kind of a sad um, set of facts. The set of facts were that uh, their sister had done a will um, years ago and she then subsequently married and she never did another will and then she died and they could not find the original will. They could only find a copy. And, you know, in New York, we have the presumption of destruction, so that if you can't produce the original will, unless you can explain to the judge what happened to the original will. For example, <clears throat> I had the original will in my house. The house burned down. Uh, that's what killed the, the person who wrote the will. So the person died in the fire, and the will that they had was also lost. Then the court might entertain a copy. But in the absence of that, the court presumes that if you can't find the original, that you've destroyed it, that the, that the testator, the person who died, destroyed it, intending to revoke it, because that's one of the ways to revoke a will, is to destroy it. And when you're left with this, then the person dies effectively with no will. And in this situation, they'd only been married a couple of months, and all of their property ended up going to the spouse. You know, I'm not sure that that's what the decedent would have wanted. Um, certainly the family's very upset about it, um, particularly since they'd only been married a couple of months and particularly since 
the will that she had written before had made provisions for many of the nieces and nephews and kind of keeping the money in the family. And I thought that was a good time to remind people that when you do a will, you got to put it in a safe place and you got to let your heirs know where it is. And if you're going to, you know, if you name an executor in it, tell the executor where the will is, where the original is. So they don't have to try to search for it and uh, rip everything apart. And if they can't find it, then you're left without a will. <clears throat> By the way, um, I'm not a big fan of people doing their own will. <laughs> you know, I, you can... Save a couple hundred dollars, I suppose, by going on one of these services and doing your own will. The problem is that if it's not done correctly, uh, and New York law is not the easiest set of rules to to properly execute a will, um, then it can be invalidated. Um, For example, if one of the witnesses to the will is somebody who's a beneficiary under the will, um, their witnessing of the will is going to be ineffective unless they agree to forego what they were going to get in the will. So and that's a common mistake that people make. And in that situation, you're left without a valid will. You saved a couple hundred dollars in legal fees, but did you really accomplish what you wanted to accomplish by doing it that way? You know, I, I continually find people who are trying to, you know, skimp on legal fees, and I get it. You know, legal fees can be expensive. But in many of these situations where they are trying to do it themselves, you know, they're proceeding without any kind of guidance and they don't have, and we're not really talking about large legal fees. We're talking about relatively minimal legal fees, a thousand or two to do a real estate closing or to prepare, you know, and uh, create a, a limited liability company. Um, instead, they want to do it themselves and they hope they've done it right. But, you know, I'm not sure that that's the most prudent use of uh, your, your savings. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on, too. Some of the things that can go wrong uh, if you do it that way. Um, we had some questions this week for Dottie, which I thought we'd get into. Um, one of them is, Dear Dottie, I was told to put my home in trust for my children. I'm not sure I understand what in trust means or how it's going to help me. Who will watch over the trust and what's your advice? You know, a lot of uh, our California residents use estate planning trusts. It's very common in California. Um, and when they come here, it's uh, sort of presumed that they'll buy their real estate in trust. So we do see uh, a lot of our, our California residents who are buying here, buying in trust. One of the issues is when you buy a co-op, which about 60% of the homes in New York City are co-ops, uh, many co-ops don't allow purchase in the name of a trust. So... What a trust does is it allows you to move the assets, your assets, into a uh, a legal entity called a trust where there's a trustee who is oftentimes the person who created the trust, could be the trustee, and they then have to comply with the terms of the trust, which essentially say what happens to the property during the person's lifetime and then also upon death. So it's a way to prepare for estate planning without having to probate a will. For example, you could do all of your estate planning without any need to probate a will if you effectively did uh, and put everything in a trust, including, you know, all your personal possessions and your automobiles, but you have to be diligent about it. But it is a way to uh, avoid having to do probate. It's also a way to avoid letting people who you have disinherited know what happened to your property because the will becomes a matter of public record. A trust doesn't necessarily... 
have the same uh, public nature. So uh, it's an, a way to keep things uh, a little bit more confidential. I, I would certainly seek the guidance of an attorney before you do it because there are tax implications to it. And uh, it's also, uh, you know, if done improperly, then the assets won't be in the trust and you won't get the benefits that you were hoping to get. Um, Robert, Robert uh, from Great Neck writes in, and I think he called in last week, too, because it sounds familiar. Can a condo or co-op board have a secret meeting? Can I demand to be at the meetings, even though I'm not on the board? Other tenants are concerned about how decisions are made in the building, and the minutes we receive a month later just aren't clear. That's a good question, and we, we get a lot of uh, inquiries from uh, our listeners about you know what rights they have in the management of the building if they're not on the board of directors. Can they attend the meetings? Can they... Uh, at least listen in on the meetings? Can they review the minutes of the meetings? And it varies depending on the, the rules of the, the co-op or the condo, um, depending on whether or not the, the, the organizational documents allow these meetings to be held uh, privately or whether they are open to attendance by any member uh, of the association, any, you know, either co-op owner or condo owner. One of the reasons why a board might not want to have public meetings is because they're not always so productive. You know, if you have a meeting and 100 people show up every month and they're asking questions and it sort of interferes with the deliberative aspect of the board. And, and for understandable reasons, boards do need some privacy when they're managing the affairs of the building, although they then should have some transparency in disclosing through the minutes of the board of directors what they're planning on doing and what they've decided to do. Board minutes are not intended to be a, a transcript of anything that happened in the board meeting. Rather, it's supposed to be a, a sort of a high-level executive summary. So, and, you know, these are usually not professional boards of directors like you would see in a large publicly held corporation. These are unit owners and people who are volunteering their time to be on the board. So it's not always the most uh, robust set of minutes. So I can understand why Robert might be frustrated that he's not seeing uh, necessarily everything he needs to see in the board minutes. But, Robert, I would consult your <clears throat> the uh, organizational documents of the, of the condor, the co-op, the house rules, the declaration, and see what are the terms of executive board meetings and whether they're open to the public, whether you have a right to attend them. You may have a right to attend but not to speak. Um, and then certainly, you know, once a year, most uh, condos and co-ops will have a public, uh, you know, unit owners meeting at least once a year where everyone gathers and uh, there that is open to the public for all members of the association. Um, Angela from the Bronx writes, Dear Dottie, my neighbor died. Uh, although we never got along, my husband and I didn't speak to him for the last several years. His apartment's going up for sale and we want to buy it. We're afraid his children won't sell it to us because we argued and didn't get along when he was alive. How would you go about putting in an offer? Is it legal to have another person make the offer for you, and do you have to disclose who's buying the apartment? This was actually another situation that happened to us in the last year. We had a client who had a very similar circumstance. It's not that the neighbor died. The neighbor was just selling, and they didn't get along. They didn't like each other. Apparently, it was a high degree of animosity, shall we say. And they just felt that if they disclosed who they were uh, in the offer process, it either would get rejected outright or it would make it much more difficult to come to a deal. Um, so there are ways to, to do it. You have to consult a lawyer 
Um, there are ways to disclose the ultimate identity of the purchaser by, you know, either purchasing in the name of an entity uh, is the easiest way to do it. But then again, if it's a co-op, it's going to be virtually impossible to do that. And on a co-op, your seller is going to want to know who the individual is who's buying <clears throat> because obviously it's, it's much more important in a co-op because, um, you know, the, the, the approval process. In a condo, you could, you know, mask the identity of the person if they were an all-cash buyer by buying in the name of an entity. Um, and that's usually the best way to do it. It's pretty hard to do. Eventually, they're going to find out, you know, and you have to wonder if they do find out, uh, you know, before the contract is signed, is it going to blow up a deal because they're going to think that, you know, it was done sort of sneakily. Um, you know, so I would weigh the, the pros and cons before going down that road. But if you really think there's no other way to get to the deal, um, then by all means, consult a lawyer and try to do it quietly. Um, Rates are back up. I don't know if uh, is Ace come on the line yet, Mr. Producer? Not yet. Okay, well, then I'm going to have to do the rates then. Uh, 30-year fixed is back up to 4.08. Um, you know, they were hovering down below 4 um, last week, and we warned everybody that things were about to change, or we were predicting that, you know, there was a possibility of change. Indeed, they have. So, you know, it's not to say they're not going to dip down again. It's not to say that, these are historically high rates by any means, um, but you know they did tick up again. So um, if you're gonna thinking about getting into the market, I would do it sooner rather than later because we don't know what's going to happen uh, in the future. Um, so the buyer sentiment um, news that came out in March was pretty good for buyers. The uh, consumer uh, <clears throat> consumer surveys think that overwhelmingly now is a good time to buy and sell a home, and most expect interest rates to fall in the next year. Um, this was a, a, a survey of, of new home owners and people who are in the market to buy. The net share of those who say it is a good time to buy increased by 7% uh, to 22%. So about 22% uh, think it's a good time to buy, which was an increase over a year ago. The share of people who say it's a good time to sell also increased. So we're up to 43% of consumers think it's a good time to sell, which is up year over year. Um, <clears throat> a monthly survey from Fannie Mae showed that in March, positive sentiment jumped to the highest level since June, which was just below the record high. Um, most consumers um, also expect interest rates to fall, as we said, over the next year. And the net share of those who say it's a good time to buy increased um, although it, it was, it's still 10 points lower than it was a year ago. So overall consumer sentiment um, is, is still below a year ago. Share of those who say it's a good time to sell increased, um, and that is actually up over a year ago. So this continues a kind of a five-month trend where consumers are, are, are starting to get more bullish about the market, and uh, we certainly anecdotally see that in the market. A lot more people who were sitting on the sidelines and, debating as to whether they were going to buy seem to be jumping in. We've got a lot more activity going on. Of course, the, the nice weather helped a little bit, too. Um, so we're going to take a quick break and a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back in a moment with Ion Real Estate right after these messages. Mm -hmm. 
It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. Good morning. It's Cherry Feeney sitting in for Dottie, who is out this week, but she'll be back next week to answer all of your real estate questions. This is I on Real Estate. Uh, if you want to reach us, ask any of your questions about real estate, real estate law, mortgage financing, they uh, still have some lines open at 866-970-9622. Um, we are approaching tax time and everybody's favorite time of the year. Um, but, you know, a lot of people have questions about capital gains and how to deal with them and how to document what's eligible for capital gains tax treatment. Um, so I do want to talk about that in a moment. But before we do that, I, the uh, East Hampton <clears throat> um, statistics on summer rentals are starting to come out from uh, the, um, you know, the month of April, by the way, is when a quarter of all the rentals in the Hamptons are are actually inked. So it's a very popular time. And um, it looks like East Hampton seems to be the most popular town out east with uh, 18% of all the searches um, for summer rentals um, focusing on East Hampton. And um, <clears throat> there's about 1,500 homes apparently that are available this summer, um, which seems to me like a lot. The median ask is about 65,000 for the summer. That's the median. Um, and uh, they seem to be, uh, there seems to be a robust pace. So it looks like all things indicate that it's gonna be a good summer in uh, the Hamptons. Sag Harbor has more than 650 rentals, uh, also with a median price of 65000 And reports are that they um, have seen a sudden surge of interest, perhaps with the change in the weather. People start to realize that uh, spring is right around the corner from summer, and they uh, begin to um, uh, finalize their deals on their summer rentals. So that's, that's good news for the Hamptons market. Um, the uh, congestion pricing has gone in, has gotten passed by the legislature, and although all the details aren't out about who's going to pay and how much it's going to be, they are beginning to reveal uh, what the plan is. And you know, I have to say, as expected, uh, you know, everybody's got a request for an exemption, so they want congestion pricing fees to be paid, but just not by me. So. The problem is that the whole point of congestion pricing is to help reduce the number of cars that are in Midtown during business hours and to focus the uh, payment um, on people who can most value the convenience of having a car in Midtown during business hours. The revenue raised will be subsidizing the, you know, the badly needed uh, repairs of the New York City transit system. So it's certainly a good cause, and I think most people agree that we need to finance the uh, the upgrades to the transit, which we've been ignoring for years and years and years. The problem is that, you know, all these exemptions are, I think, just going to gut the entire purpose of this. And we're going to have uh, lots of people in Midtown that, notwithstanding the, the congestion, aren't paying any fees and therefore are per- perhaps overusing uh, the need to have a car in, in uh, Midtown during the business hours. Uh, one thing that I was surprised about is the, the, the cross-down exemption. If so, you go from the west side highway to the east side highway and stay on the same cross-down street, apparently they're not going to charge. I, I don't know how that makes sense. I mean, you know, you're cutting across the city in the middle of the day. It's still going to cause congestion, even if you don't veer off of one of those cross streets like 42nd. 
um, why would you exempt that? You're just going to continue to push the flow of traffic across the city in the middle of the day. I, I think if people want to pay for that privilege, let them pay the congestion pricing. Otherwise, they can go down below the the baseline for the congestion pricing during the day and, and then go across. <laughs> There's a lower income exemption, too, which at first glance I I understood, you know, people with a lower income uh, are apparently uh, going to be exempt in part or in its entirety. But when you think about it, it doesn't really make any sense. First of all, people who have a lower income um, are more likely to, to take transit anyway and less likely to have an automobile. And if we talk about the, the purpose of congestion pricing, which is to reduce the number of cars, why would you exempt people who have a lower income and, and essentially you know, encourage those people to use their car in Midtown, whether you have a lower income or a higher income, the car is the same size and it still causes the same amount of congestion. That makes no sense to me. Um, people with disabilities are going to be exempted. I'm all about giving uh, extra help to people with disabilities. I've been an advocate for many years, but I, I don't see why they need to get an exemption to, to drive in during the day. Um, rather than either take mass transit or drive at a time that where their congestion is lower. Uh, again, the size of the car, it's the same size car as somebody without a disability. I don't understand why we're incentivizing that. Um, they're also only going to levy it once a day. That doesn't make any sense. So if you pay in the morning for the congestion pricing uh, surcharge, then your incentive is going to be well, just keep coming back during the day. You know, you don't have to go around. You don't have to avoid Midtown. Once you exit, you can go back over the bridge and use your congestion pricing pass. That, to me, it should be built every time you enter Midtown during the day. Why give a once-a-day pass? Um, the medical-bound hardship exemption that the mayor is proposing, I, I just don't get this. We're not talking about people who are, you know, having a heart attack in an emergency vehicle. We're not talking about that. Talking about people coming in for a doctor's appointment or, um, you know, a dental appointment or something like that. Why on earth would would uh, you exempt them from the exemption pricing? They're able to take the subway if they wanted to. I mean, if you want the luxury of going into Midtown in the middle of the day just because you happen to be going to an appointment to see a doctor, it doesn't seem to me that it follows maybe I'm missing something that you have a hardship. It's not a hardship. It's a and how possibly you're going to monitor it. How are you going to know? Who's going into Midtown to see their doctor? Are you going to call the doctor and see whether they have an appointment or something? That just makes no sense. Commercial truckers are seeking to avoid the fee. Well, that is mind-boggling because commercial truckers, first of all, they're the ones that are going to benefit tremendously from the decrease in congestion pricing. So to ask at the same time for an exemption to me seems you know counterintuitive. And moreover, you know, commercial truckers... I, shouldn't be being encouraged to come into Midtown in the middle of the day. They should be encouraged to come into Midtown in the middle of the night, which is what other cities do, requiring deliveries to come in when traffic is lower. So, you know, if they don't really think through this, the exemptions are, are just going to end up, I think, swallowing the rule and making very little sense of what's left. But if you have an opinion on it and you think I'm wrong, which, you know, uh, I, I don't have a thin skin. Tell me why I'm wrong. Give us a call at 866-970-9622. Tax time is around the corner. The tax filings are due uh, on the on the 15th. Um, although, you know, a lot of people uh, go on extension as 
as I think most business people go on extension and pay the tax and send in the tax filing later on. But the April 15th deadline is right around the corner. Um, and I think it's a good time to review some of the, you know, the rules for what you can do with your principal residence and what kind of improvements are eligible for special tax treatment. So let's start with the basics that on your principal residence, when you go to sell a principal residence, you can exclude the first 250,000 of the gain if it was your principal residence for the last two of the last five years. And you can exclude the first two, excuse me, 500,000 if you're a married couple who files jointly. And it was the principal residence of at least one of them for two of the last five years. This is a huge, huge gift that survived tax reform. Uh, and it is really one of the, the biggest benefits to homeownership from a tax perspective. Because you can do this every two years if you buy well and sell well and have a prudent investment sense and manage to be lucky enough to have a profit every time you sell. You can do it every two years. It doesn't matter what you do with the money. You don't have to reinvest it at all in real estate. It's not required. Uh, and you can simply exclude capital gains tax on the first 250000 for an individual. That's a huge gift, and it's one that... Um, uh, really makes homeownership uh, that much more attractive from a tax perspective. If you have exhausted that and there's more capital gains that are due, you can begin to exclude certain things from the capital gains uh, tax basis. In other words, you can adjust your basis with what we call capital improvements, uh, qualified capital improvements. For example, we're taking down uh, some trees up at the weekend house next weekend, we're you know professionally having them taken down because they are uh, the trees are old and they're uh, diseased and they're in danger of falling down and damaging the property. So in that case, the IRS allows you to deduct from the basis the cost of that improvement to the property. Um, the the tree service would just submit an invoice. You produce you keep a copy of the check and the invoice. So when you go to sell you can reduce the capital gains that much further because you had to improve the property by, re by taking down a diseased tree, and that entire amount is eligible. By the way, an interesting fact about the trees, for those of you who are not in apartments, but rather houses where there are surrounding trees, um, if you have a diseased tree and you're the homeowner and you don't maintain it, you don't either attempt to save it if it's savable or remove it if it's diseased and in danger of falling over and it falls over or the wind blows it over and damages your house, homeowner's insurance is not necessarily going to pay for that because you have an obligation to uh, maintain your property and to prune back or remove dead uh, timber. So don't assume homeowner's going to pay for everything. You do as a uh, consumer, uh, homeowner have an obligation to maintain the property. We're going to take another quick break. This is Ion Real Estate. We'll be back just after these messages from our sponsor. It's I on Real Estate. Got a question? Call 866-970-9622. Here's Douglas Elements CEO, Dottie Herman. We're back. This is Jerry Feeney sitting in for Dottie, who is away this week, but she'll be back next week with all of your real estate questions. This is Ion Real Estate and our number 866-970-9622. If you have any real estate questions or concerns, um, feel free to give us a call. 
We were talking before the break on anticipation of tax time uh, about our favorite subject, which is taxes. You know, not uh, everybody's favorite topic to talk about, but frankly, it's timely. So I just want to go over some of the the rules. We were just talking about capital gains on residential property. I want to just take a few moments now to talk about um, ca- um, capital gains on investment property because people tend to forget uh, that if you own property and it's investment property, when you go to sell, you've got to account to the taxing authorities for the capital gains on it. And you don't have as favorable a tax treatment as a primary residence where you get the exclude the first 250000 of the gain or 500000 if you're a married couple filing jointly and you it was your principal residence for two years of the last five. On investment property, the rules are different. Investment property, when you go to sell, you have to account for the capital gains on the property, which is essentially a concept roughly equivalent to profit. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but it's roughly equivalent to the profit on the on the property. You also have to, however, uh, account for what's called depreciation recapture without getting into too many t- technicalities. The IRS requires you, when you own investment property, to depreciate it, to divide the, the purchase price of the property by 27 and a half years, and every year take a, quote, fictitious loss, whether the property is going down in value or up in value. And what's usually happening is the property is going up in value, as real estate often does, although there's no guarantee, but typically that's the case. But then the IRS rules require that you uh, take a loss every year uh, against the income on the property related to um, 27.5 years of depreciation. So if you bought the property for a million dollars, you would roughly take about 30000 a year in depreciation. And that's great while you're owning the property because then you can decrease the income that you're showing on the property and therefore the income taxes associated with it. But when you go to sell, you got to account for that. And uh, depreciation recapture rate is uh, rel- higher than most people's capital gains rate. The moral of the story is you want to try to defer doing that if you can. And the way to defer, the only way left under the tax code to legally defer it is to use a 1031 exchange. We were, it was on the tax, uh, it was on chopping block when we did tax reform. Uh, 1031 exchange, it was being talked about as a possible, um, you know, elimination to raise revenue. But what ended up happening is they eliminated it for everything but real estate. So previously you could do a like-kind exchange, 1031, on, on a farm tractor or on a prize cow or something like that. But now they eliminated it for everything except real estate, which was important to, uh, you know, our industry, of course. And what it allows you to do is if you're selling investment property – and you're going to buy another investment property, if it is property that you hold in productive use in business trade or investment, then you are allowed, if you follow the rules, and the rules are specific with respect to how long you have to identify property and how long you have to close on the property and that the funds have to be held by an intermediary and you can't hold them yourself. There are a number of rules of which you know we are, we're experts in. You can always call us and we'll walk you through them. But if you comply with all the rules and you buy other property that you're going to use productively in business trade or investment, you can keep deferring the gain. So although you have to realize the gain when you sell, you don't have to recognize it from a tax perspective if you do a 1031 exchange, and then you defer it. And then if a couple of years you sell it again and buy another piece of investment property, you can defer it again. And you keep deferring and deferring and deferring 
for the entire, you know, your investing career. And then when you start to sell off property when you're in your retirement, maybe to, to generate income or assets to enjoy your retirement, you're usually at a lower tax rate then. It's more beneficial to do it at that point in time anyway. Or the real magic of it is you can uh, put it into your estate, leave it to your heirs, and they get a, what's called a new basis of death, and it wipes out all that gain. So it's a very powerful, legal, effective tax planning strategy. But the biggest mistake that people make is they don't do it in a timely fashion before they close. If you sell your property today, you close on it today, you go to the closing and the checks are all made out to you and you bring them to your bank and you deposit them and then you call your 1031 advisor, you call your CPA and say, okay, I've done everything I'm supposed to do, I put the money in the bank, I'm ready to go, I wanna do a 1031 exchange. The answer is you blew it. You blew it by putting the money in the bank because the minute you touch it, the minute you have what we call constructive control over the money, the IRS's uh, 1031 rules no longer apply. You can't do it. You have to have the money held by a qualified intermediary. And it's sad when I hear people doing this, sometimes on really rather large amounts of money with capital gains implications in the, you know, sometimes million-dollar range, where if they had simply had uh, a real estate agent or a CPA or their lawyer or any of them advise them and remind them of this powerful tax strategy, they could have really deferred it. They could have done exactly what they were planning on doing anyway, which is sell one investment property, buy another one. But if they had done the 1031 exchange, they could have avoided recognizing the payment of the tax at that time by successfully deferring it. And, uh, and boy, I'll tell you, there's been some very unhappy consumers when we had to talk to them over the phone. They called us for the first time after the closing, and we had to give them the bad news that they blew the the, uh, the rules. They can't do it once they touch the funds and put them in their account. So, you know, it is, if done properly, it's a great way to build wealth. It's very hard, I think, in investment real estate to effectively build a very uh, robust portfolio if you're not doing 1031 exchanges. Because every couple of years you're going to be selling and paying the tax man. And if you have to keep paying the tax man every time you sell, it takes a big chunk out of your profit. And it really does make it more difficult to, you know, accumulate a, a significant and decent portfolio. Um, so if you have questions about 1031 Exchange, always talk to your tax advisor. You can always call us on Ion Real Estate. Um, but, you know, it, it really is worth the time to understand it and learn about it because, uh, as I say, if uh, you don't do it in a timely fashion, you can um, run the risk of paying a tax bill you didn't know what otherwise have to pay. Um, I came across this article, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, somebody's building a pool in their $100 million brownstone uh, on West 69th Street, and apparently it's been going on uh, for quite some time, and all day long, from 9 to 5, pneumatic diesel-powered jackhammers are um, attempting to you know, crack through the, the, the bedrock and in the uh, basement, and it's creating quite a nuisance for the last several months. And it, you know, it brings to mind this question of what you do when you have a noise situation in New York. And, you know, as I remind people all the time, it's probably one of the biggest complaints that we get in the, in the uh, tenant land is, is noise complaints. Um, we, New York City does take 
complaints over their general 311 information line. You can make a complaint about noise. And, you know, I think that the city does pursue it, but there's only so much they can do. Uh, a large metropolitan city is going to generate noise. But when it gets to the level of a consistent, uh, you know, high decibel sort of jackhammer that is going every day, you know, every business day for many months, I can imagine how neighbors in a residential neighborhood would find that very distressing and difficult to enjoy their property. And I think that's what's happened here is although the, you know, the people that are doing the work have apologized to the neighbors and understand their frustration and being upset by the disruption of their lives because of this constant noise, it's nevertheless taking a lot longer to do it than they anticipated. And um, they're just not done yet. And it's creating quite a bit of nuisance in the neighborhood. And, you know, I was thinking about what could have been done to avoid this. And I think that you know, one of the things that can be done is is to create expectations up front when you're doing a renovation project that's going to cause a lot of noise to your neighbors. Let them know so at least they understand what's coming. Let them know what the plan is. And, you know, frankly, in this situation, if I were doing a $100 million townhouse project, I think I'd be tempted to offer something to my neighbors uh, for their trouble. Um, you know, and not that you necessarily have to, but I think it would be a way to keep everybody calm down, and particularly if you're going well over the timeline that you expected and these people are trying to enjoy their homes during the day. And even though it's business hours, a lot of people work from home. I think that, you know, you could you could offer some sort of compensation to them for their uh, for the trouble and inconvenience. And and I think that a little bit of that can go a long way um, towards, you know, calming everyone down apparently it's really creating havoc for the animals in the neighborhood understandably dogs are particularly sensitive to noise and pneumatic jackhammer going on you know every day for eight hours um is apparently causing a lot of the dogs in the neighborhood to go nuts and bark and howl and it seems to be one thing is leading to another i gotta believe there's a way for the contractor also to mitigate the noise of this. I mean, you know, is it really necessary to, to be doing it for months and months and months of pneumatic jackhammering? I, you know, I don't know, but I can't imagine how, um, you know, how annoying it is to the neighbors. The, the owners, I think, are frustrated, too, because it's gone on a lot longer than their contractor estimated, you know, and they've apologized to the neighbors. But I think that, um, uh, you know, I think that this is a situation where it probably could have been handled a little bit differently. Um, I saw an interesting study about homeowners and, and their lack of having a contingency fund for emergency repairs. And it was kind of shocking, some of the statistics here, that close to 20% of homeowners have no money set aside for home repair. And, you know, it may be that they don't understand the, the possible cost of home repairs or that they seem to think that insurance is always going to cover everything. I think there is a tendency, particularly on new homeowners who don't have experience in, in owning a home, that they think that things are just going to be paid for by insurance if things go wrong. And that's really, you know, typically not the case. You know, if the, if the roof starts to leak and it needs a new roof, insurance is not going to pay for that unless it was caused by some kind of a, an event where insurance would cover it. For example, if there was a hurricane or if lightning struck or something like that. But just normal maintenance items um, on, uh, on a home are not going to be typically covered by insurance. You know, the, the water heater breaks or the furnace 
needs repair. And the other thing is these vendors generally won't come and do work. You know, we have that experience when we bring a vendor up. They want a check on the spot. They want to be paid when they arrive. They don't want to have to collect the money later on. So if it's the middle of winter and your furnace goes out and your pipes are risking being frozen and cracked and you don't have the, uh, um, you know, funds set aside to pay a vendor, you know, it's a really dangerous condition that could, uh, you know, really parlay into something much more significant than it was. So you always want to have an emergency fund accessible, um, you know, to, to cover emergency repairs. It's hard to tell how much of an emergency fund, what the amount should be. But, you know, maybe three, good rule of thumb is three to six months of monthly carrying costs just sitting in the bank for one of these emergencies. You know, an example is a, a, a new roof. Average cost of a new asphalt shingle roof for an average size home is about $10,000. And that's just an average. I assure you that they can be much more expensive than that. Um, there are a lot of uh, companies that are offering these um, warranty for warranties for uh, home um, repairs. And, you know, like any kind of insurance policy, it's only as good as the coverage that it provides. And although they sound good at first glance, you pay a monthly fee and the advertisement says, you know, if your hot water heater breaks or your water heater breaks, they'll come and repair it or your furnace, et cetera. But I, I think you really have to examine the details of these policies to see what the coverage is going to be, what the deductible is going to be, whether it's going to cover, uh, you know, a water heater that's of a certain age um, and whether it will cover it to the full extent of a brand new one or will it simply cover it up to the cost of, you know, the market value of, of the old water heater when it breaks, which is relatively low. So I do caution people who are spending money on these policies, and some of them are several hundred dollars a month, to make sure that they understand what it covers, what's exempt, and is it really a good buy versus just putting the money in the bank, developing your emergency fund, and then you always have the money there accessible, and if you don't use it for that, it's not lost on the payment of an insurance policy. Uh, so that's, uh, that's it for emergency repairs. We're coming to the top of the hour where we have a, a news break. Uh, this has been Iron Real Estate. And uh, as I said, Dottie Herman will be in next week. Uh, and now we're going to take a break for the news at the top of the hour. State with Dottie Herman is sponsored by Citizens Bank N.A. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.